0: April 23rd is St George's Day, the day that is of the patron saint of England, and therefore England's National Day. But St George's Day is not a national holiday as such. When it falls on a weekday, nobody gets the day off. Such celebrations as there are tend to be muted, even furtive, and not infrequently controversial. When the English look at their national flag, the St George's Cross, many feel more inclined to shudder or sneer than salute. This is not a new phenomenon. George Orwell wrote, and is worth quoting at length, that England is perhaps the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their own nationality. In left-wing circles, it is always felt that there is something slightly disgraceful in being an Englishman, and that it is a duty to snigger at every English institution, from horse racing to suet puddings. It is a strange fact, but it is unquestionably true that almost any English intellectual Intellectual would feel more ashamed of standing to attention during God Save the King than of stealing from a poor box. This unease among English progressives has become even more pronounced during the last decade. The campaign for a referendum on the UK's membership of the EU and the vote to leave it were largely driven by an angry, nostalgic, specifically English, nationalism. But a national day is supposed, by definition, to be for everybody. So why isn't St George's Day unambiguously celebrated, St George's flag unhesitatingly waved? Why does Englishness feel to many more about what it isn't than what it is? Is it time, and remember, this is an Australian speaking, that the English gave themselves a break? This is The Foreign Desk.
1: A lot of people think that, you know, England is about guilt stroke resentment about empire, but empire was British. So there's no particular reason why England should feel more tied up with imperial guilt. But what is the case is that England is the most multiculturalist country in the union, and that multiculturalism is a direct product of the British Empire. I'm over
2: here because the Brits were over there. We suffer in England with the fact that we don't have a border between ourselves and the Westminster Parliament. So unlike the Scots and the Welsh, we can't tell where Britishness ends and Englishness begins. They are, to many people, synonymous. If we're looking for a New England, then it's that post-imperial identity that we can try to make, that we respect our history, but we're honest about it. We tell the truth about slavery. We tell the truth about how empire can never be anything other than about exploitation. I mean, why do you think the Romans come here? For the weather?
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Joining me, first of all, from Edinburgh to see if we can figure out what Englishness actually is, is Ailsa Henderson, Professor of Political Science at the University of Edinburgh and author of Englishness, the political force transforming Britain. First of all, we need to separate Englishness from Britishness, because I think to overseas audiences in particular, the distinction might not be immediately apparent. How would you define the difference between those two things?
3: It's an important question. For us, the main thing is Englishness attaches to English national identity. So we're looking at people who would describe themselves as English rather than British or possibly in combination with also feeling British. And then we look at the values and attitudes that correlate with those who describe themselves as English. And two things pop out for us. The first is that English national identity is associated with a sense of Euroscepticism, and then English national identity is also associated with a sense of devo anxiety or disquiet with the constitutional status quo. But it's important to note that English identifiers are not necessarily English nationalists. So they're not necessarily thinking of a need for an English Parliament, although some certainly are, but actually what we find is that English identifiers, when they think about the state and they think about a glorious future for that state, they're actually thinking of Britain as the state, they're thinking of the UK. So in a way, English national identifiers are in many ways, British nationalists rather than English nationalists. And I think that complicated relationship between English identity and British identity is something that you don't quite get when you're looking at national identity in Scotland or in Wales, for example. They're far more tangled together. So they're thinking of England when they're thinking about constitutional options. But when they're thinking about the wider world, they're thinking of Britain and Britain's past and reclaiming some of Britain's past glory.
0: This is something that does seem pretty apparent about Englishness, and the last few years, for obvious reasons, have focused it, that there is a nostalgia and there is a grievance underpinning it. But is it possible to say specifically what that nostalgia is for? Is there a particular period or an idea of a particular period that that English identity is grasping towards?
3: I mean, a lot of it is bound up in the war, the Second World War, this perception that Britain stood alone part of it is attached to parliamentary sovereignty and Britain's independence and parliamentary independence and sovereignty before membership in the European Union certainly but you mentioned grievance and I think we know a bit more about grievance and what the object of that grievance is and it manifests itself as a kind of sense of disquiet with the way things are working in the state at the moment and it has a particular target and that particular target is Scotland. And it manifests itself in a disquiet over what is perceived to be Scotland's undue access to influence within the state, and also a disquiet about what is perceived to be Scotland's undue access to resources within the state. But it's also worth noting that the English are not particularly unique in that sense of grievance. We might describe the state, in a way, as a union of grievance, because when we do polling, And we look at, for example, willingness to share resources with other parts of the state, we find a similar reticence in terms of sharing, you know, with interregional solidarity, we see a similar reticence in Scotland, as we do in England.
0: Do you think it's fair, though, to think of Brexit in particular as a specific expression of English nationalism? Obviously, Scotland voted very heavily, remain Northern Ireland reasonably, decisively, remain Wales very narrowly Brexit. But it was driven by English rage, English disquiet, English grievance, wasn't it?
3: It's certainly something that is more prevalent among English identifiers. But the funny thing about it is that, yes, it's explained by Englishness. However, it's not necessarily English nationalism. So it's an understanding of the British state that is particular to those who describe themselves as English. So it's not necessarily driven by a particular vision of England's future, but rather a particular vision of Britain's future. So it's a form of British nationalism that is held by those who describe themselves as English rather than British.
0: Do you think it's that coherent, though? Because it struck me as, to a large extent, a sort of just this atavistic dissatisfaction with the way things were, even if no one was necessarily sure on the specifics. It often seems to me, as an outsider here, that English identity is much more about what they don't want than what they do want.
3: I think it is coherent. I don't think it's kind of directionalist and and vague. I think there is an assessment that the state is not working as it might be, and that there are two critiques, and and they're both to do with an inability of the English to express themselves as a political community. So there's, there's an inability to express yourself as a political community domestically, because the English lack the equivalent of devolution that has been afforded to voters in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And we know that every time we ask in different ways about the level at which people want some sort of institutional solution to the status quo, then people want something that exists at the level of England as England. So there's lots of reasons why people want local government, but introducing greater local government or city regions or that doesn't satisfy that fundamental desire to have an opportunity for England to express itself as a political community. So there's dissatisfaction with that. And there's dissatisfaction also with the curtailing of influence in terms of Westminster. So it's a coherent critique. I think your point about is there a settled response, I think where we come into trouble is that there's no easy solutions to any of this, right? Because we know that if we have devolution to England as England, that's a deeply asymmetrical and some would say destabilizing change that would be made to the UK state. So it's it's unpalatable to loads of people for all kinds of reasons. And that's why we get these solutions. Well, let's try something at the local level. Let's try something at the regional level. Governance in England is incredibly centralized. There is a demand for greater subsidiarity. But when you're proposing these solutions, you have to understand that there's multiple sources of dissatisfaction. And so some of the solutions would solve one problem, but not, not the fundamental problem of English voice.
0: Is it too much of a reach to suggest that everything there you've just said may be the reason that quite a lot or so much of the English electorate has in recent years gravitated towards a prime minister and a government who seem increasingly less interested in the union and increasingly more indifferent to Northern Ireland, certainly Scotland to a perhaps slightly lesser extent?
3: I don't want to speak for them, but I wouldn't say that they're less interested in the union. I, I think they just have a particular understanding of the union. I think there's a couple of things going on in terms of in terms of the interpretation of, of Englishness that is put forward by different political parties. And, and Labour has been quite slow to engage with it, would be one interpretation. loath to engage with it, would be another squeamish about engaging with it. I think partly out of a disquiet about nationalism that exists below the level of the state. But I think the Conservative Party has certainly been more comfortable about using the language of Englishness and English national identity. And that was largely, I think, because they were watching on their, on their right flank, they were watching voters leave towards UKIP, and it was largely an effort to protect the party from departures to UKIP in particular. And as a result, what we're seeing now is a formulation of Englishness and English national identity where the dominant players have been on the right. But it need not be so, and it was not always so. In the 20s and 30s, you also had folks who portrayed Englishness or understood Englishness as gentleness and kindness rooted in local experience and perceived Britishness as this kind of hard, exterior, militaristic, opportunistic, imperial kind of power. And we don't, that sense of difference between Englishness and British, that particular form of it, we just tend not to hear of very much these days.
0: When you look at English identity manifesting now in younger English people, how do you see it evolving and changing in coming years and decades?
3: In terms of younger people and older people, it's predominantly older people who describe themselves as English rather than younger people. We also know that there's different demographic clusters by education and by social class as well. So it'll be interesting to see how in future years that relationship between age and national identity might change, but it's early days yet.
0: What's your sense of how much English identity is defined by, how to put it, their idea of what the other peoples of the United Kingdom think of them?
3: We ask people how they feel about the Union and how they feel about what's going on in in other parts of the Union, but we've tended to shy away from kind of interpersonal questions or assessments of people. We're more interested more in people's attitudes to institutional structures and what's going on, rather than say, do you like the Scots and what do you think the Scots think of you? Partly because we know it's such a complicated issue, it would take a far longer survey to kind of get it right and do it in a sensitive way. You know, we've always been very careful not to ask questions or come up with lines of analysis that could be interpreted as us saying well the english they're just they hate foreigners and they're backward-looking and they're not interested in anyone else and they hate the scots and it's not that it's a critique of structures and i think a fear that our findings might be misinterpreted has kept us off studying what i would describe more as kind of the interpersonal elements of things or the intercommunity Elements of this. You know, when we ask about policy uniformity, this is one of the clearest pieces of evidence we have that people still have a kind of statewide construction of social citizenship. There is this understanding that people should have the same policy entitlements no matter where in the state they live. There's incredible support in England for the view that policy should be the same throughout the state, which is you know, policy variation is the automatic corollary of devolution. If you devolve certain policy areas, by definition, you could have legislators that come up with different policies, right? So there's this deep unease about that in England. And we think in part because so much of the variation is in the form of things being free to people who live outside England, right? So it's hard for us to tease apart the kind of principled English support for policy uniformity and a kind of we're all in it together. We should have the same social rights and a kind of, well, hang on a minute. You're getting better policy than I am. You're getting more generous policy than I am. And it's it's hard for us to test that in part because the policy variations that people know of are the ones where it's just more generous in Scotland. So we're trying to find examples where policy is less generous in Scotland. So we could say, well, how do you feel about policy uniformity now? Would you be happier with this more generous policy in England or would you like everyone to have this less generous form that exists in in Scotland? But reality makes it very difficult for us to come up with working examples where we can test this sort of thing.
0: Ailsa, thank you. That was Professor Ailsa Henderson, author of Englishness, the political force transforming Britain, which is available now in paperback. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. <laughs> The sum of our identity is a choice. The music we like, the hobbies we pursue, the things that make us laugh. But we don't get much of a choice about our nationality. Does it define us, or do we define it? For English people, for all the reasons examined in this episode, it can get complicated. Monocle producer and editor Christy Evans reflects on what being English means to her.
4: I am a tea drinker, but not if it's too weak, or if you've strained the bag, and don't even think about putting the milk in first. I fiercely uphold the queuing system, and if you were to even accidentally cut in front, I would huff and puff until I am red in the face, silently seething. But I won't say anything to you, instead, I'll turn to the person behind me and raise my eyebrows to the sky before eagerly awaiting for karma or a nearby attendant to guide you to the back of the 50-foot line. I have such little self-respect that I joke about all my little insecurities, but I like you so much that I will poke fun at your weird jumper. I was born in a suburban town in the south of England on April 23rd. St George's Day and William Shakespeare's birthday. And I am uncomfortable with being English. It wasn't always this way. As a child, my birthday weekends were often spent at town events celebrating St George's Day, the patron saint of England. I remember helping to draw a chalk dragon on a brick wall in Salisbury and having the St George's cross painted on my cheeks. I can still recall the feeling of jubilation at such events during the first warm spring days of the year, and wishing it was a public holiday so I didn't have to go to school on my birthday. One of the first Facebook pages I joined as a teenager was a campaign to make that dream a reality. The only time we'd ever watched sports in my household was to support England during the World Cup. And I long again for the sense of camaraderie I got from seeing England flags fluttering from passing car windows each season. But as I have grown, my love of my country has diminished. At school, I learned about our lineage of monarchs, but didn't understand the class divide until I watched the film, Billy Elliot we were taught about the American slave trade. But it wasn't until I saw Shane Meadows' This is England that I woke up to the white supremacy which has always been here and draped in the white and red flag since the late 60s.
1: Milk, Mr God, I'm really glad you came here today, because I've got one question to ask you, and that's do you consider yourself English or Jamaican? English. That's what we need, man. That's what this nation has been built on, proud men. 2,000 years, this little tiny fucking island has been raped and pillaged by people who have come here and wanted a piece of it.
4: The Windrush scandal made me think of my maternal grandmother's journey to London from Imperial India and the racism her brown-skinned, English-born children faced on their way to school each day. That St George's Day Facebook page I joined started releasing posts of an inflammatory nature, sneakily disguised as patriotism, and eventually renamed itself. To Tommy Robinson, the pseudonym for the far-right, anti-Islamist activist and convicted fraud and stalker, Stephen Yaxley Lennon. If a pub is flying my flag outside of sporting events, I avoid it because the boarding, beer-bellied regulars would fall silent and watch my every move until I leave, despite being white myself. And last year, as my Italian colleagues stayed locked in their flats during the European football final through fear of being attacked on the streets and my foreign colleagues discussed the abhorrent behaviour of my countrymen, I stayed quiet, hoping they would forget what I was. When they finally looked to me for answers, all I could do was offer a spluttering apology and do my best to avoid the topic until it had died down again, retweeting every left-leaning post condemning the situation so everyone had no doubt as to my real feelings on the matter. I could say something about how most of those who defend the flag voted for Brexit and fear refugees are the ones who have been most let down by the institutions they look up to. But at least they have a sense of pride and belonging that I have only been able to enjoy through my Welsh, Scottish and Irish friends when celebrating their national holidays. Perhaps it is me who has been quick to label my flag like a frustrated teacher to a problem child. But every now and then I find myself sitting at lunch, passionately explaining the versatility of the baked bean the meaning of Pancake Day or the proper Christmas cracker etiquette to my friends who are experiencing these joys for the first time. And when our northern business editor asked me the other day how long I'd been in London since moving from Australia, I looked at him, frowned and said, mate, I'm English.
0: That was Monocle's Christy Evans. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. If St George's flag is often flown as a keep out sign by some English people or interpreted as such by others, does that necessarily mean that English identity is off limits to immigrants and or members of ethnic minorities in a way that Britishness isn't? Well, joining me now from Bristol is Tariq Madud, Professor of Sociology, Politics and Public Policy at Bristol University and the author of Still Not Easy Being British, Struggles for a Multicultural Citizenship. Uh, let's start with the reason we're doing this show, which is St George's Day. Does that occasion mean anything to you? I'm afraid up to now it doesn't
1: really. I mean, in some ways, I wish it did, but... I didn't know it was St. George's Day till, you know, this program was arranged. (laughs) So I can't confess to it meaning much to me at all. But it's not because I'm kind of against there being an English National Day. It's because it has so low prominence up to now.
0: Well, one of the reasons we wanted to do this show was to look at why that is, why there is this ambivalence in a lot of English people about the symbols of English nationhood. And I wanted to ask you, do you feel like English and British are two entirely distinct things? To you personally, are they interchangeable or do you feel like they're very different?
1: Not at all different. No, I think they are part and parcel of each other. Britain is over 300 years old. England's obviously a lot older, but in this period of time, England has made Britain, just as you know, Scotland and Wales as as well, and Britishness has obviously modified Englishness, so I don't think of them as entirely separate, far from it.
0: It's certainly more anecdotal than data, but my own experience has been that a lot of people who are themselves immigrants to Britain or to England or descended from immigrants to this country feel much more comfortable describing themselves as British than English. There still seems to be a sense that English is a more exclusive, if that makes sense, identity. Yes, I think that is true,
1: and I think it's true for myself. I identify much more squarely with being British and being English is still, if you like, a work in progress (laughs) and not just for me. I think for the country, British is a more established identity, though, of course, it's also in some ways an identity suffering from internal contestation to do with what you might call imperial legacy and multicultural Britain today but also obviously from Scottish, Welsh and English nationalisms. I do feel much more British than English, but if you you like, I'm becoming, quite willingly, uh, becoming more English as English national identity becomes more
0: apparent. When you talk about English identity becoming more apparent, what do you mean by that? Well, I think
1: there is a, a kind of, cultural recreational dimension which is very big and there's a political dimension so the cultural dimension of course i think is led by sport the english teams we have very few british teams we send a british team or a gb or uk team to the olympics but otherwise most sports we play as england wales and scotland of course the big popular sport is football and the nation does go a bit crazy when there are national competitions, especially like the Euros and, you know, the World Cup and so on. You see St. George's flag here and, of course, the Saltaire in Scotland, if they're participating, and the same in Wales and so on. So I think our national consciousness is very strongly led by things like sport. But there is a political dimension And I think in many ways the English identity as a political identity is a reactive identity to a number of things, to Scottish nationalism, to the European Union, of which now we're out of it, but then that's because the English nationalists were able to craft a Brexit result. And also I think to the sense of cultural change what I might call multiculturalist British change emergence of a multiculturalist country, which for some people is like too much too fast. And so they react to that. And so they find it easier to react, some people anyway, to saying, oh, well, we're English, given that people like me are waving the Union Jack and wearing it on our t-shirts and so on. So I think there is a kind of sense of cultural loss and this is one of the i think the most significant differences between englishness scottishness and welshness scottishness and welshness are no less historically minded than englishness and then if you like no less nostalgic because mm. they point to the past but they point to the past with a sense of recovery and with a sense of enthusiastic recovery into the future Whereas I think Englishness is strongly tinged with a sense of cultural loss. It's not only that. I, I do think there are more positive and progressive forms of Englishness, both politically and culturally. And I would say the most emblematic figure standing for that would be the English national team football manager, Gareth Southgate. I think he is an eloquent champion of an inclusive, useful English national identity.
0: But that aspect you're talking about of a, a national identity kind of mired in loss and nostalgia, even grievance, does that not suggest something that is becoming more insular, obdurate, and exclusive? Do you mean if it was to prevail, uh, it might do, but I don't see it prevailing.
1: I think that, yeah, as I say, they were very influential with Brexit. And they're becoming very influential in the Conservative Party, which is obviously the ruling party. So it is a kind of rising force. But I think for that politics to succeed, it needs to reach out to other voters and it needs to tell a positive story about England if it was to be just nationalist, which I doubt if it will become, and I doubt if it will want to just tell a negative story of bitterness, and resentment and loss and nostalgia. But I think in the long run, it will be taken up by people who don't just want a negative story, you know, including people like me, who don't just want, for instance, a negative story about empire. A lot of people think that, you know, England is about guilt, stroke, resentment about empire, but empire was British. At the very mm-hmm. least, it was Anglo-Scottish. And if any country got the best deal out of the British Empire, it was Scotland. So there's no particular reason why England should feel more tied up with imperial loss or imperial guilt. But what is the case is that England is the most multiculturalist country in the Union, in fact, in Europe. And that multiculturalism is a direct product of the British Empire. I'm over here because the Brits were over there.
0: (laughs) You've talked in broadly optimistic terms about how you see English as opposed to British national identity evolving. Do you think part of that could potentially be a more widespread observation, recognition, celebration of events like St George's Day? Or is there something arguably that might be a little un-English about celebrating in such an unrestrained fashion?
1: Yeah, I think... Probably in the long
0: run, St. George's Day is the kind of thing
1: that perhaps we ought to make more of. But I would like, as it were, a more British inflected English national identity. So I I don't want a kind of separatist English national identity, nor Scottish, nor Welsh. And so, given that there are, I think, many positive things about British multiculturalism, I would like that multiculturalism to become part of english national identity and as in when it does that and it is happening to a degree especially amongst young people then yes i want to support i want to you know say yeah what about saint george's day but i don't want a english national identity to proceed and possibly cut itself off from multiculturalist britishness
0: Tariq, thank you. That was Tariq Madud, Professor of Sociology, Politics and Public Policy at Bristol University. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Do stay with us. For all the reasons we have been discussing in today's episode, England remains a difficult country for some English people to celebrate, and especially in front of left-leaning English audiences. One artist who has spent a long time trying to do exactly that is the singer-songwriter Billy Bragg, also the author of The Progressive Patriot, A Search for Belonging. Uh, Billy, first of all, do you do anything yourself to acknowledge
2: St George's Day? Not really. No, I don't. I have to say that. It kind of creeps up on me every year. I usually get reminded of it when I see references to it on social media, some people talking about it or complaining about it. So no, I don't have anything planned. But it is something that you have
0: addressed both in song and in print and in interview many times throughout your career, trying to reconcile English patriotism with some notion
2: of, I guess, progressive politics. And they're not always an easy fit, are they? Well, it depends if you think um, there's only one type of patriotism, you know, for most people, patriotism expresses itself as a defense of the status quo and what we might call status quo patriots, their identity is founded in symbols like the flag, institutions like the monarchy and assimilation, the idea that everybody should be like them. Because they're here and this is their space. Whereas my patriotism, which I would call progressive patriotism, is based on values. They're the things that are important to me, the values that our country aspires to, which just in passing, mentioning this week, one of them on the government's website is the rule of law. So you can see how what's been going on in the comments has been making me really angry, you know, because also a progressive patriot is concerned about the behavior of people from our country and whether they are reacting in a way that fits up with those values. And also we believe in diversity, a diverse country, a country where many people come together to make a contribution so that whatever Englishness is, and it's different things to different people, but it's actually, it's what happens in the space called England and all the things that happen in that space, good and bad, are part of it. It's about space rather than race. But
0: there is a curiosity that has been pointed out more well, many times that where England specifically is concerned, there's a feeling that certainly the most bellicose patriots in England tend to be anything other than progressive. And people who would characterize themselves as progressive, especially on the left of politics, are very, very reluctant about proclaiming themselves or appearing to be obviously patriotic.
2: You think people on the left who understand how many different types of socialism there is will understand that there are different types of patriotism. I think the left try not to go there because it's difficult for them, whereas I think that if we on the left don't express some idea about the country that we love, how do we generate that sense of belonging that allows people to feel part of it? I have friends who don't feel British or English at all. You know, people of colour who are born in this country, have grown up in this country, but prefer to feel European or Londoners you know so it is a problem and with regard to the the more staunch patriots the more status quo patriots the famous aphorism of Johnson about patriotism being the last refuge of the scoundrel that was a comment on scoundrels not patriotism (laughs) you know patriotism belongs to everybody or nobody so it's what it's kind of what you make of it and some on the left because they think that patriotism is the opposite to internationalism, don't really have a grasp of the possibilities. Whereas I think patriotism is an aspect of internationalism because it's what you bring to the table when you're talking about internationalism. You know, what positives can you bring to the table? I've always been someone who's tried to get a grasp on that from a leftist perspective.
0: Is there a thing, though, especially, again, on the English left, that so much of their own feelings about England are caught up with their own discomfort with certain aspects of English history? I mean, not that there are no aspects of English history that people shouldn't feel uncomfortable about. Remember, this is an Australian talking, but but they can't see anything else. They cling to the worst of it and
2: use that to define their own country. I think there's something else going on there, and that is the almost complete overlap of Englishness with Britishness. We suffer in England with the fact that we don't have a border between ourselves and the Westminster Parliament. So unlike the Scots and the Welsh, we can't tell where Britishness ends and Englishness begins. They are to many people synonymous. So... What's mixed up in Britishness, of course, is the you know, Union Jack patriotism, the empire, and the failure of, of us to come to terms with that, all those aspects of what were done in the name of the British empire. If we're trying to talk about, and I hate to say these two words together, mate, but you know how it is, I'm Billy Bragg. If we're looking for a New England, then it's that post-imperial identity that we can try to make, that we respect our history, but we're honest about it. We tell the truth about slavery. We tell the truth about how empire can never be anything other than about exploitation. I mean, why do you think the Romans come here? For the weather? So it's, you know, it's it we've got to face up to those things. But beyond that, there is a possibility of almost a, if you like, almost a blank sheet. Because England is so invisible. There are so few manifestations of what England actually looks like today. That's why the sporting events are so important. You know, every four years or two years, if you include the European Championship you know, in soccer, we get a, a vision of what we look like, and that's who we are. But to, outside of that, to try and find a, a manifestation of, of something that says this is who we are, you know, we don't even have our own national anthem in the way the Scots and the Welsh do. We still cling to God Save the Queen, and I think that is a an insecurity that we, we somehow feel that without the Union Jack to wrap around us, we're not as great as we could be, whereas it's not really about being great. It's about taking part. You know, you don't have to win the European Championship in 2022 or 2021, as it was, to have had a great championship and to amaze everybody and bring everybody together, you know?
0: Do you think there is any prospects, though, that those symbols that, England does have. The St George's flag in particular could ever become something actually inclusive. One of the reasons we ended up making this show was a conversation in the office about the St George's flag and one of the producers making the observation that when you see that flag hanging on a pub, it's basically a keep out sign.
2: Well, it might not be. It might be that uh, England are playing cricket or football or rugby or something. You know, you go in there, you know, you must have been in pubs with the Australian flag behind the bar, surely, you know, when the rugby's <laughs> on or when the, there's a cricket on, you know. But
0: there is a different thing there, though. In England's the only country I know of where a lot of people will see a fellow citizen flying their national flag and assume that person to be motivated by basically
2: unsavoury okay. politics. Two things here. Firstly... Flags are always about context, okay? Mm. When you see the flag, you've got to think, what is the context? You know, the most often I see an English flag is flying off a church tower. That's clearly not a mark of racist fascism. When the Germans had the World Cup in their country about a decade ago, they got into the semi-final before they felt able to fly their flag. They were too ashamed of the ramifications of that. And I think all nations feel a bit like that. But I absolutely accept what you're saying because one of the things that when I'm talking about to try and get this post-imperial identity, we have to deal with the fact of why people feel that way when they see a England flag on the back of a white van, you know, because it's my country and I love my country and I'm not prepared to stand by while the flag of my country is used as a symbol to oppress my neighbours, that my neighbours feel threatened by that. You know, we have to come together to deal with that issue and try to manifest a more progressive idea of what England is, not was or not even could be, but actually is at the moment, and get our heads around that and try and reconcile a national identity, you know, identity, I think, personally, identity is a fundamentally a personal construct. You can't tell someone what they are. In the end, it's how they feel about, about where they live and what they feel part of. And that's something we haven't really done very much to build around the idea of Englishness. That's why it remains such an abstract.
0: What kind of resistance have you run up against personally over the years of trying to make this case to your audiences in particular, who I'm going to guess are not largely inclined towards the overt flying of the St George's Cross?
2: Well, you know that thing where people accuse you of preaching to the converted <laughs> and try and dismiss your politics? Are so you just preaching to the con- You try talking about English nationalism to my audience in the late 1990s. I tell you, they <laughs> were like fripped by it. I have a song called England Half English which tries to make this case. And it finishes off with me saying, oh, my country, oh, my country, what a beautiful country you are. A leftist friend of mine, a fellow traveller, when he first heard it, when he sing it, he said, you're being ironic, right? I'm like, no, I'm not being ironic. Don't you love your country? And there are times when you think, this is me, I'm part of this. When people ask me to define what Englishness is, sometimes I'm asked to write a list of 10 things that define Englishness, you know, For if I write a newspaper article. Well, the first thing on my list would be Marmite, because I've never been around the world, I've never seen anything like, I mean, forget Vegemite, that's a completely okay, different thing.
0: Okay, we're going to have to wrap no, this up. No, 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 no let's not have the
2: argument this, now. This, this is outrageous. Marmite would be top of my list, and there, you know, 50% of English people would be appalled by that. <laughs> so you can't put a list together and say, this is the list. And Whereas that's, in some ways, that's what the status quo patriots try to do. And I don't don't think identity works like that, I'm afraid. One of the other problems we don't have is that there is no Museum of England. If you go to Scotland, there's a great Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh, really good, tells the story of their nation, very powerful, in Wales also, in Cardiff. But if you want to find out the story of England, well, we're in the British Museum in between the Romans and the Byzantine Empire. And you've got to try and work it out from there. And it doesn't really tell you anything else about what happened after 1066. So we're a long, long way behind. We're... Trying to, you know, hide behind the British identity as if Englishness is some lesser identity. I don't I don't accept that. You know, it's not either or you can be both at the same time. That is one of the pluses of being British is everybody is allowed two flags, the flag of the state that you're a part of and the flag that you were the country you're born in. Not many countries allow that sort of thing.
0: Well, to tie the concept up with a neat little bow then, perhaps a red and white one, do you think it would make any difference if St George's Day, i.e. this country's national day, actually was a national holiday, which, to be clear, it is not, on which perhaps English people could all unite in a rousing version of
2: Jerusalem? What's the most powerful thing that we ever gave the world, Andrew? What's the thing that the empire gave us that we all still benefit from? Everyone who thinks the empire is in the past actually there's still something that we English people hugely benefit from, from the empire. And that's the language. The fact that everyone speaks our language. So if we're going to celebrate our national day, let's take the opportunity for the fact that on St. George's Day is the day where most people think Shakespeare was born. It's also the day on which he, actual day, which he died. And let's make St. George's Day Shakespeare Day. I think Shakespeare would be much more evocative of who we are and where we are and where we've been. So I I think let's have Shakespeare Day. Billy, thank you for joining us. That was Billy Bragg.
0: Billy's latest album, The Million Things That Never Happened, is out now. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy Evans. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening and playing us out this week, England's regrettably unofficial national anthem, Sir Hubert Parry's arrangement of William Blake's Jerusalem, as performed by one of today's guests.
2: And it does be